Tonight, if you'd uh, stand with me for our call to worship. <laughs> call to worship is going to be in the bulletin. It's going to be Psalm chapter 29. Uh, it's going to be a responsive reading. <clears throat> Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple everything says glory. The Lord king and flood. Yes, the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. If you'd uh, turn with me in your hymns of grace hymnal as we begin to sing to the Lord together. Hymns of grace, number 368. We're going to start out with Speak, O Lord.
provided for us. You've blessed us with so much more than what we deserve. We are truly grateful. We're grateful for this day that you've given us, for the opportunity and the clear weather to be able to gather together once again to focus our attention upon you and to worship you and to hear you as your word is read and as it is preached. Lord, we pray that you would have us to have ears that are open to hear and soften our hearts to receive that word, we pray. Be with all those who are not able to be among us today. Grant them peace, grant them uh, health, grant them protection. Bring them back to our gathering soon, we pray. And we ask that you would be with Brother Micah as he preaches today, that you would give him strength, boldness, to speak the truth. We thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, once again, in your Hymns of Grace hymnal, Hymns of Grace, this time it's going to be number 394. 394, and this one is going to be uh, familiar words and uh, a familiar tune. It's it's going to be actually the tune of the same title by the same or song by the same title in Trinity 593. So if you can read music and you're wondering what's going on, that's what's going on. Uh, the tune in Hymns of Grace is not one familiar to us, but we're going to sing the words in Hymns of Grace, number 394. It's going to be Jesus, I my cross have taken.
find ourselves this morning in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. You remember when we started the book of Luke, we read uh, the beginning of that book was addressed to a man named Theophilus. This book, too, is addressed to that same man. Therefore, we have a pretty good idea that it was written by the same individual who is Dr. Luke himself. Um, today, in chapter 1, we're going to read about the ascension of Christ and his return to heaven. And then we will read about the choosing of the replacement of Judas, who was the one who betrayed Jesus. Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 1. I wrote the former account, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after he had given orders by the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. To the same apostles also, after his suffering, he presented himself alive with many convic convincing proofs. He was seen by them over a 40-day period and spoke about matters concerning the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he declared, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait there for my father promised, which you heard about from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had gathered together, they began to ask him, Lord, is this the time when you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he told them, You are not permitted to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the farthest parts of the earth. After he had said this, while they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And as they were still staring into the sky while he was going, suddenly two men in white clothing stood near them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered Jerusalem, they went to the upstairs room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, were there. All these continued together in prayer with one mind, together with the women, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a gathering of about 120 people, and said, Brothers, the scripture had been fulfilled that the Holy Spirit foretold through David concerning Judas, who became the guide for those who were arrested Jesus. For he was counted as one of us and received a share in this ministry. Now this man Judas acquired a field with reward of his unjust deed, and falling headfirst, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines cut out. This became known to all who lived in Jerusalem, so that in their own language they called that field Hekdalama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his house become deserted 
and let there be no one to live in it and let another take his position of responsibility. Thus, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus associated with us, beginning from his baptism by John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness of his resurrection together with us. Just a quick pause there. You see the qualifications of someone who was going to be called an apostle. They must have been with Christ throughout his entire teaching time, seen him die and resurrected in order to become an apostle. So anybody that you run across today that claims to you that they are an apostle, you might want to bring them to this portion of scripture and just remind them of the qualifications they need in order to to have that title. So they proposed, 23, they proposed two candidates, Joseph called Barsabas, also called Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to assume the task of this service and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. Then they cast lots for them, and the one chosen was Matthias, and so he was counted with the eleven apostles. We're going to continue to worship the Lord in song together. And this, uh, this next hymn is a hymn that will be new to us. Uh, it's not new to me. Uh, I promise you I know this tune better than the last one. Uh, it's going to be Hymns of Grace number 406. Would you stand with me as we sing?
I pray? Heavenly Father, we uh, come together with your people this morning, knowing that we are a needy people, we are a suffering people, we are a people with trials and temptations and sins and griefs that we have borne. We are also a people who come together and say that Christ is sufficient for us today. Christ is sufficient for us today. Christ is sufficient for us every day and for all eternity. We thank you that Jesus is our reward, both now and forever. He is the shore of our salvation. He's ever faithful. He's ever true. We thank you that that's true this morning as we look into your word. We can understand nothing if it weren't given to you or given to us by you and illumined by your spirit. We thank you that your spirit takes what belongs to Jesus and declares it to his people as he indwells us and illumines our minds to understand your word. So, Lord, we pray that you would both confront and comfort us today with your word. Pray that you would draw our minds to the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. We ask you these things in his mighty name. Amen. If you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter, continuing in our week-by-week study of 1 Peter, it'll be 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to linger over a couple of verses that we've, we've already read in a couple of other messages, but there's, there's more truth to be mined out of these that we didn't cover previously. So 1 Peter chapter 1, it's going to be verses 6 and 7. And if you remember our introduction to 1 Peter, this, Peter, this letter is entitled to elect exiles. He, he actually uses those words back to back. If you have the English Standard Version, you can see it. If you have the New American Standard or something else, sometimes you can't see it as easily, but it, that's what it actually says. It says, to those who are elect exiles to this dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So this letter is addressed to sufferers. Exiles are sufferers. The wilderness exile, the wilderness sojourn was suffering for the children of Israel. Their exile into Babylon was suffering for the children of Israel. And Peter is drawing on all that imagery as he paints a picture for us of the church of Jesus Christ, specifically to these uh, churches in these various locations in Asia Minor. But this is true of all of the church of Christ, no matter what uh, geographical location or what time period they inhabit. We are elect exiles, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, given to Jesus Christ for salvation. And we don't belong to the world. And because of that, there are certain pressures that the world uh, exercises against the church. We feel what it means to be exiles. We sense that this world is not our home. And that's the reality that Peter is speaking into in verses 6 and 7. He's saying that this reality of being an exile will bring with it Various trials by which they are grieved. 
Let's read these two verses together. In this you rejoice. In what? The salvation that's going to be revealed in the last day. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that's intensity and multiplicity of trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's the situation that Peter is speaking into. He is writing to a church that has begun to suffer, and their suffering will actually only grow as time goes on. He uh, says in uh, chapter five, or chapter four, verse twelve, "Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, so that something, uh, as though something strange were happening to you." So they've begun to suffer. They've begun to feel this reality that they are exiles in the world because they belong to Jesus Christ. But it is something that will only intensify. Peter's preparing them for it, and he's preparing them to honor God in that trial, that fiery ordeal that is coming upon them to test them. That's the context here. But before we get into this text, I want to tell you a story of some other exiles that I think will lead us into the text appropriately. There once were four teenage boys in an ancient kingdom who were considered the cream of the crop in all the land. They were, from, they were from, from influential families. They were intelligent. They outmatched their peers in academic achievement and in appearance and in almost every other way. And they were, they were handsome. They were the kind of people who would lead their great nation into the future. They were youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, fit to be advisors to kings. They were all of these things for the sake of their kingdom, their homeland, and their God. And one day, calamity struck. A rival king who had ravished the whole known world had finally come to darken their doorstep. And the land that they loved, their king, their country, were razed to the ground, and everything valuable in their homeland was made the possession of this foreign king and his false gods, including these four young men. They were carried off to a far country that they'd not known in chains. That's not where their horrors ended. In fact, in a lot of ways, that's where their horrors began. Upon arrival, they were castrated, divested of any future posterity through which the people of their homeland could grow, ripping away their heritage and their legacy. And after they healed, their re-education began. They were forced to learn the literature and customs of the land of their exile for three years. And as if castration and re-education wasn't enough to forcibly assimilate these four young men to the cultural identity of their captors, finally, they changed their names. They wouldn't even allow them to keep the names of their homeland. Attempting once and for all to rip away the cords of identity binding them to their people and to their God. And... These four, young man, these four young men 
were given the names Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But their names are actually Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And maybe you could tell, as soon as I started telling this story, this isn't just a story, this actually happened. And you know the rest of how this thing goes. You can read about it in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is a story of faithfulness in exile. But their lives testify to us of the trials that await elect exiles. What we see in their story is that Satan and the world have one purpose for us in our trials as exiles. What, were, what was Babylon, what was Nebuchadnezzar trying to do to Daniel and his friends as he carried them off, robbed them of children, changed their names, and made them undergo three years of re-education? He was trying to conform them into the image of his world and his gods. That's Satan trying to conform them to strip them of their identity as the people of God and conform them into the image of the world. But God has another purpose in the suffering of the exiles. And you can begin to see that as you read through the book of Daniel. You come to the end of the book of Daniel, and Daniel's still there, and now they're using his real name. Daniel's still there, and Nebuchadnezzar's dead. Babylon has fallen. And Daniel's still there serving these other kings. And God gives him a promise that at the end of days, you'll stand in your allotted place and you'll come to rest. He's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about inheritance, which Peter also says, Peter is also trying to draw our minds to, our heavenly inheritance. So what should that show us? What was that illustration intended to show us? It was intended to show us that Satan and the world have one purpose in your suffering. But that's not the ultimate purpose. God has a purpose in every trial that comes into your life. As we live in this world that is not our home, as elect exiles, God has a purpose in every single trial uh, that, that we face as believers. And I think that we get a sense of God's purpose in these trials in verses 6 and 7 of 1 Peter. So turn with me. We're going to read these verses again. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. So he starts off these verses with a, a statement that connects it to what he said before. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice. But you have to ask yourself the question what is the this that Peter's audience is rejoicing in? Is the, the, you know, there's, there's a couple of options because it's not, it's not exactly clear in the text. The this that they could be rejoicing in is what immediately precedes it. Look what immediately precedes it in verse, verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So they might be rejoicing in the fact that it is God's power that is the source of their saving faith and God is exercising his protection for them until he brings them to their promised inheritance, salvation on the last day. 
They could be rejoicing in the future deliverance and the certainty of that deliverance. That's one option. The op- that, that option says they're rejoicing just in what immediately precedes these verses in verse 5. But there's another option that I think better encapsulates what Peter's talking about here. And that is that they're rejoicing in all of the gospel blessings that, that Peter recounts from all the way from verse 3 to verse 5. Let's walk through them together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So they're rejoicing in the mercy of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're rejoicing in their elect status according to the mercy of God. They're also rejoicing in their effectual calling and regenerating grace. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They rejoice in the fact they've been joined to the living Lord. They've died with Christ. They've been raised with Christ. And as people who have, been di- have died with Christ and been raised with Christ, they have been, mem- been made members of the new creation in him. That kingdom that he is bringing from heaven when his glory is revealed. They're being joined to his resurrection. They're being born again to a living hope through that resurrection has granted them that inheritance. So then verse 4 we see an inheritance imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. An inheritance that will never fade away. An inheritance that will never perish and will never be defiled by sin or any other corrupting thing. And it's kept in heaven for you. This is a secure inheritance. So I think that when Peter says, in this you rejoice, they're rejoicing in all of the blessings of the gospel that Peter has, ju- has previously uh, laid out for them. They're rejoicing in the grace of the gospel and the irrevocable inheritance granted to us in Christ. But don't miss the fact that all of those things for Peter are future-oriented. This is Peter's audience and Peter himself has a relentless grip on future grace. He has a relentless grip on the future blessings of the gospel that have been secured in Christ's work and in the application of that work by being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So all of our salvation is future-oriented. We, we, receive, uh, we receive blessings of the gospel now, yes, but we, there are blessings of the gospel that we will receive in fuller measure in the future. So this is a future-oriented rejoicing that Peter's audience uh, is, possesses. And then look at what he says next. <clears throat> in this you rejoice, what, this, this future salvation Uh, which is secured through the present finished work of Christ. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So do you see the contrast here? He's talking about their future salvation and the certainty of their inheritance. They're rejoicing in that. And then he says, but now, 
So there's a contrast between their position then, their possessions then, their home then, and their exile right now. He's teaching them what to expect from life right now. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various or multiple trials. So this is an intentional contrast by Peter. And you see it, you see it elsewhere also in this uh, letter. Turn with me again to uh, chapter 4 verses, and verse 12. Verses 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So what do they have presently? Presently they have fiery trials. Presently they have suffering. In the future, what do they have? Well, they've shared Christ's sufferings. Now rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. For if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's not, that's not, the, only, that's not the only other place where we see this in Peter, though. Uh, chapter 5, verse 10. <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And, and after you have suffered for a little while, a little while right now, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter's teaching us what to expect out of life now. We expect fiery trials now. We expect multiple, various trials now. We expect things to grieve us now. What's also interesting is that Peter doesn't shy away from the grief that the living in this world as exiles brings. You know, you hear some preachers on TV that basically tells you to ignore all your grief, ignore all your pain, ignore the trials and the suffering that comes into your life, uh, and they tell you to tell yourself that, tell yourself things like, I am successful, I am happy, I am blessed, I am uh, wealthy, I am healthy. They tell you to feed yourself these lies in order to escape the reality that is right in front of you. Peter doesn't do that. Peter says he speaks to the intensity of what they're both experiencing now and what they'll experience in the future. You've been grieved by various trials. Calls it a fiery trial in verse 4. And Paul uses the same exact, uh, excuse me, uh, but even though he calls it that, there is this constant uh, exhortation to look to the grace of God in the gospel that awaits for us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But Paul uses the same contrast, the same acknowledgement of horrible suffering in this life and the same focus upon the future, what has been secured for us in Christ. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> This is not uh, 2 Corinthians 5. It's 2 Corinthians 4, 
verse 16. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Literally, that word for Paul means destroyed. Our outer self is being utterly destroyed by the trials that have been brought to us. Although our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So both Peter and Paul use this contrast because it is in some ways, antithetical to our experience. Our trials right now don't seem light. In fact, both of the apostles recognize that. Paul says uh, our outer self is wasting away or being utterly destroyed. That doesn't sound light, and it doesn't sound momentary. Peter says we've been grieved by various trials. That doesn't sound light, and that doesn't sound momentary either. So this kind of thing... It sort of chafes against our experience in this life. You know, to Daniel, his suffering didn't seem momentary or light. To the person who's relapsed into cancer for the third time, their suffering, their trials, don't seem momentary or light. We have those who struggle with migraines uh, in our congregation. Um... If, if you've ever struggled with that, you know that that doesn't seem momentary or light. That's like having a headache every day for your whole life sometimes. It doesn't seem momentary. It doesn't seem light. It seems heavy and it seems endless. But Peter's, Peter's emphasis here in this combination of temporary trials and eternal joy gives us a hint at the first purpose of these trials. Because even though these trials don't seem momentary and don't seem light in our experience, we have to see these things from God's perspective. Beyond the trials, Christ is our great consolation and reward. That is why Peter is pointing them toward the future. Peter is pointing them toward their inheritance in Christ. He's telling them to hang on and he's holding out Christ as their great reward, their great treasure, and their great consolation even though their griefs are various, even though their trials multiply, even though their outer self is being destroyed. Paul gives us a powerful window to this, into this truth in Philippians chapter 3, where he talks about what he suffered the loss of. Philippians chapter 3. talks about suffering loss so that he might gain Christ. Philippians 3, starting in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth or the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God 
from God that depends on faith, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection, that I might share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What do trials and sufferings and loss do in the life of Paul? They make him treasure Jesus Christ more. He's willing to suffer the loss of all of those things because they allow him to take even firmer hold of Jesus Christ. That by any means I might attain the resurrection of the dead. I consider all of these things as rubbish for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. That's not only a present reality. That's a future reality too. That's the reality that Peter's trying to point us to. He's saying you have something so much more weighty coming in the future. You have something so much more lasting coming in the future in Jesus when Christ is revealed from heaven. And it makes even your most intense griefs seem like nothing in comparison. And I think this is one of the purpose of trials in our lives. This future orientation of Peter's language here shows us one of the purposes. It's so that we might look past these things and toward the coming of Christ. Just to give you an illustration, there are some people out there that can do two different things with both hands at the same time. Have you ever met any of those people? They could be doing one thing with this hand and one thing with this hand, and they could keep doing them all without any handicap in either of them. Um, I've never been one of those people. The hand that I focus, if I try to do that, the hand that I focus on keeps going and the other one slowly screeches to a halt. It slowly stops doing whatever it's doing. I can't operate this hand and this hand doing two different things at the same time. And I think that there's a very similar relationship in the believer's apprehension of worldly things and heavenly things. Suffering in this world drives our eyes toward heavenly, heavenly reward and away from worldly preoccupation. It takes your eyes off of this hand and turns them to this hand. It shows us that we can't treasure both of these things at the same time. One of these things has to die. Suffering teaches us either you're going to love the things of this world or you're going to love the things of the world to come in Christ, but you cannot love both. So it divests us of our worldliness and it teaches us to hope truly in the blessings of the gospel that are coming to us in, this li- in, uh, in the next life. Spurgeon said, I've learned to kiss the wave that casts me against the rock of ages. Trials in this life are meant to turn your mind to the future blessings of the gospel when Christ is revealed from heaven. But it's not just the future orientation here that Peter uh, has his mind on. Trials don't just serve the purpose of drawing our minds to future blessings of the gospel. They also draw our minds to Christ's present work uh, in the application of his gospel work in our lives right now. So this next point is trials and our present. Look at verse 7 with me. So that, notice how he says in verse 6, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, 
And then verse 7 is a, is an, a cause and effect statement. It's so that. So there's a purpose that these are serving in the present tense. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So look at the tested genuineness of your faith. Because there's an illustration and an adjective that Peter uses here. Peter is comparing faith tested by trials to the process of proving that gold goes through to, prove, to burn out impurities and to prove that it is genuine. Uh, John Calvin uh, gives this illustration, talks about a, a double proving in the process of refining gold. The first time the gold passes through the fire, it's to burn out the impurities in the gold so that those might be taken away and you might be left with a pure product. And then the second time the gold goes through the fire, it's to prove its worth or its value or its genuine nature. So we have here, uh, in Peter's illustration, the fact that faith goes through trials to prove that it is genuine saving faith and to increase its value as it trusts more deeply in Jesus Christ. That's what Peter means by the tested genuineness of your faith. He's drawing your mind to that process of testing precious metals. That's why he says it's more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. It's it's proving that something is the real thing. That's one of God's purposes in your trials. It proves that you've truly trusted in Jesus Christ as you continue to look to him despite what's going on in your life. But this illustration also shows us a fundamental truth about all of our woes and our afflictions and God's heart behind them. Our trials are not impersonal results of nameless and purposeless causes. Trials, as you go through your life and bad things happen to you, these things don't just happen to you. That's the glorious thing about being a Christian is because you can see the truth that everything that happens to you happens by the hand of God's providence. Nothing just happens to you in your life. There's nothing for us to complain about. All trials, all of these fires of testing are prepared by our Father in heaven. We are far too easily discipled by the world in our thinking about the events of our life. The world teaches us to think about the events in our lives as if they're just impersonal forces that you know you kind of grumble about, you kind of complain about, and then you just move past. That's the world's thinking. That's not seeing things from God's point of view. He is the one burning the dross away. He is the one sanctifying you through every single affliction. He is the one purifying your faith and so that it might come out more precious on the other side. He is the one deepening your trust in Christ through every single event that causes you to look away from the world and look to Him. Paul speaks about this in even more startling terms in Philippians chapter 1. I know we're flipping around a lot, but there's just a lot that the New Testament has to say about this. Philippians chapter 1, in verses 27 through 30. 
Only let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So that's what Paul is after. Paul is after singularity of mind and gospel-centeredness among this church. Then verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. So that's what suffering and standing firm in suffering and being refined through suffering uh, results in. It's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For, verse 29, this is the big one. It has been granted to you. Stop. That's gift language. It has been granted to you that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. In other words, God has a goal to accomplish through your suffering. He has a desired end that he is trying to produce. For Peter, Peter explains that desired end as purified, tested, and proven faith. For Paul... Paul's desired end that he's speaking about is the propagation of the gospel. When people come against these Philippians, and when the Philippians stand firm with their hope firmly rooted in Christ, that's a sign to the person that it would persecute them of their condemnation and the fact that you have everything that you need in Jesus. So for Peter, it's the the desired end that he's talking about is purified and proven faith. And for for Paul, he speaks of suffering as a vehicle for the propagation of the gospel. So this trial in front of you right now, in your life, the trial and the fight that you so dread, this trial that God is using to declare the glory and sufficiency of Christ to the world and to conform you to his image, was bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. You don't have to turn there, but 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18 talks about our suffering, this light, momentary suffering, suffering actually producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond anything that we can imagine. In other words, as God uses suffering to sanctify you, as God brings trials into the life of his exile people, those, ex- those trials are being used to make you more like Jesus Christ. And as you're made more like Jesus Christ, there is an eternal weight of glory beyond anything that you can comprehend that is being constantly added to as God's grace is at work in your life. So it's not just the product, your sanctification, that is bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. God works through these means. So when you come to your trials, you should see this thing in front of you, this thing that you dread. You should see it as a blood-bought blessing of the gospel intended to make you more like Christ and enhance your heavenly reward. And this also rebukes the attitude that we have so often about any difficulties in our life. Not even something as serious as these churches in Asia Minor were going through or Paul was going through as he wrote to the Philippians. This rebukes the fact that we complain about the weather. 
we complain about the slightest amount of discomfort. How can we complain about these things when we know that every discomfort, when we know that every hurdle, when we know that every trial is brought to you by the grace of the gospel to bring you to the image of Jesus Christ? You realize that when we complain, when we grumble, we curse the name of Christ implicitly? Not only are you grumbling against God's providence, you're grumbling by something bought with the blood of Jesus intended to produce a certain effect in your life for your eternal good and God's eternal glory. We must eviscerate. We must crucify all complaining, all grumbling in order to honor Christ. And when you do this, what's amazing is you begin to see all of life in light of what Christ has accomplished for you. You begin to see all of life in light of your eternal heavenly reward, the joy, the joy that you will feel forever and ever in Jesus, ever-deepening, ever-widening joy, eternal satisfaction in Christ. You will see, when you take your mind off the world, when you take your mind off the present, and when you drive it to the future, to the revelation of Jesus Christ, you'll begin to see your trials in the light of the gospel. So we have to stop talking in an interrogative mood. Why am I suffering? And start talking in the... Or if I'm suffering, why does God, or why does God allow suffering... Uh, if he loves me. And we have to start talking in the indicative mood. I'm suffering because God loves me. I'm suffering because there is something that he wants to achieve in my life. A believer can say that every single thing in their life is brought to them by the mercy of Jesus Christ. Um, this drew my mind to, as I was studying, to the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Do any of you know what the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is? It's, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I, body and soul, in life and in death, belong unto my most faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who is fully satisfied for my sins with his precious blood and delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. And then it goes on in describing the blessings of the gospel. Uh, he so, it says after that, he so rules over all things that not one single hair can fall from my head without my Father in heaven's permission. And indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. So the Heidelberg Catechism, right at the beginning, in the first question, is casting all of life in light of the assurance of the grace of God in Christ. All of life is seen through that lens. <clears throat> now lastly, we have the ultimate end of our trials. We talked about a couple of intermediate ends that get you to look past them to your future reward in Christ. They get you to see them in light of the gospel. But then the final end, the final the telos of all these things, the, the ultimate goal of God in all of your trials. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So not only does Peter show us the immediate purpose of these trials, refining and maturing faith, he also shows us that all of these trials ultimately are made to produce praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But we have to ask ourselves a question about that. What is it about battle-worn, refined, fiery furnace faith that is so uniquely glorifying to Christ on that last day? When Jesus returns from heaven to deliver his people from all of their enemies and to vindicate his people in front of all the world and angels, all of creation, what is so uniquely glorifying to him about tested, genuine, precious faith? <clears throat> well, there's a few answers from 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, verse 3, he created it in us. So he gets the credit and the glory for it. We are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not only did he create it, but he sustains it and wields it for our protection against any foe, protects us from falling away from the faith. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And not only is faith his instrument by which he grants to people what he himself won. We talked about that a little bit in the last sermon. Why is faith so precious? Well, the primary reason that faith is so precious is because faith receives Jesus Christ as our surety before the Father. Faith is precious because faith apprehends and takes hold of Jesus Christ. That's one of the main reasons. But there's another reason that I think Peter's hinting at here. On the last day, when heaven opens and the elements melt with fervent heat and all of the rusty treasures of earth are burned up, faith that is tested and genuine will be a testimony to all of creation that Christ is worth more than all of these things combined. When our faith is tested... And we stand firm in faith, clinging to Christ, throwing ourselves on Christ, trusting in Christ as our highest prize at the last day, forsaking all to follow him, no matter what the world might throw at us. We testify to the world in that moment that Jesus is worth more than anything that the world can give us. And on the last day, that tested battle-worn, purified faith will be on display and vindicated for every eye to see, even the damned. And everyone will know that Jesus Christ is truly the treasure that is better than any of the, these things in the world, the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. All these things that we love in our idolatry, all these things of the world that we put before God in our deadness and sin, on that last day, Jesus will be revealed as better than any of that. And the faith of the elect will be vindicated at that revelation of Christ from heaven. That's why this event, this revealing of Christ from heaven, that's why faith uh, so glorifies Christ on that day, because it testifies of his worth 
that transcends the worth of anything in the world. But also, this battle-worn, tested faith is the jewel in Christ's victor's crown. Everything done to his people that the world, the flesh, and the devil ultimately meant for their destruction, every trial ultimately served Christ's purposes for the salvation of his people. Do you understand that? Is that Christ even wields the adversarial nature of the actions of Satan for your salvation. So even on the last day, everyone will see that Christ is not only victorious despite the trials of his people, but Christ is victorious even in the trials of his people. So the, I guess the question that we should come away with today is how should we relate to the trials in our life? As we go through this life as exiles, people who don't belong to this land, waiting for our inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. How should we relate to the trials that are put before us? Well, we should look past them to our eternal reward in Christ. We should treasure Christ above all those things. We should see that Christ, even through our trials, is wielding them by the mercy of his own gospel for our eternal good and God's eternal glory. And we should know that on the last day, every one of our trials and our purified faith through those trials ultimately redound to the glory of Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mercy of the gospel. Thank you that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and he will return. He's ascended, he's interceding for his people and even as a product of his intercession our trials are wielded in his hand as waves that cast us against the rock of the ages. So we thank you, and we do come to the rock of ages this morning. We trust in his grace as we go forward. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>